It is a little bit, I think, poetic this morning that we would be in Psalm 4. Only because, and I say it's poetic only because, as a psalm that speaks much about the idea or the activity, we might say, of sleep. Uh, there has been several nights this week in which I did not uh, obey this psalm, <laughs> and I didn't get much sleep. Uh, so I found that uh, a little bit ironic, maybe, <laughs> uh, that as I was studying this psalm, uh, I didn't do what it was saying. <laughs> And in fact, I know that I'm not the only one that experienced that. For whatever reason, as I was talking with a number of folks and even some fellow pastors uh, this past week, it seemed that everyone had the same sort of sentiment on their mind. That this week, for whatever reason, has pressed them in a number of ways and making them experience no small amount of anxiety. And I found that really interesting only because it seems like sometimes the Spirit does something to us. In order for us to see that he is our true and our only hope, as he says at the end of the psalm, that only you can make me dwell in safety. This psalm, Psalm 4, is a really fascinating psalm. And some of your Bibles, maybe you have those Bibles that have the little titles to prefix some of the psalms. You might have this title, it might be something like a nighttime prayer or an evening vigil or something like that. Often, even if your Bible doesn't have that, you can clearly see what the theme of this psalm is in these eight verses. It's, it's almost like David is sort of sharing his, his bedtime routine almost. <laughs> he's talking about sleep and he's talking about going to bed and communing with God while he's on his bed before he goes to sleep. And even the last verse, uh, verse number eight, I will, lay me, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. Almost, it, it made me think of that, that little nighttime prayer maybe you said as a child. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. <laughs> it sounds a little bit similar to what David is here praying. And it made me think about as David is here talking about sleep and rest and laying down in peace. It made me think about David's own life. Just think about the life of King David. This one who uh, spent most of his early adulthood as a fugitive from the very kingdom that he had been anointed by God to rule. I, I have no doubt in my mind, and this is a little bit conjecture, that he got into some really bad sleeping patterns. <laughs> as he was running for his life, sleeping on rocks and in caves, he developed a, a number of bad sleeping habits. Which maybe he spent the rest of his life trying to overcome. Maybe you can relate with that. <laughs> this is, I'm not going to ask this because I know it's rhetorical. But how many of you, just think for yourself, would say that you struggled to get to sleep at night? In fact, in 2001, there was a study that was conducted on a number of U.S. adults. And 20% in 2001 said that they, would, uh, said that they were sleep deprived. Meaning roughly less than five hours of sleep per night. The same sort of study, not exactly the same study with the exact same variables, but very similar 20 years later, so 2021. And roughly that number has doubled and actually pretty comfortably doubled. So over close to 50% of U.S. adults would now say that they are sleep deprived. They're not getting enough rest. In fact, I think not getting enough sleep is so common that when we do sleep for more than eight hours, 
you're almost surprised. You're kind of shocked. You wake up and you have no idea where you are. You ever have those really good naps where you wake up and you're kind of confused as to what day or what year it is? It's almost kind of shocking when we actually get some good sleep. And I was thinking, and I was thinking, what has occurred in the last 20 years that would lead to such a dramatic spike in sleep deprivation? And of course, we don't have to wonder too long. We don't have to imagine too far because just think about all of the technological advancements that have happened in the last 20 years since the turn of the 20th century or 21st century. All of the the things that we have right at our fingertips. And we have the, quote, unholy trinity of technology and social media and 24-hour headline news to keep us anxious. (laughs) To keep us awake at night thinking about all of these things. And the advancement and the emergence, I think, of those outlets over the last 20 years has led to more hectic calendars and more addictive technology and more distracting distractions and, and more, more bleaker, bleaker news stories. They fill our minds. They fill our brains with thoughts that, that, that seemingly make everything a little bit hairier, even as we want to pull our hair out by what we read and by what we see and by what we're taking in. But what makes, what makes going to bed so full of anxiety? Maybe you know, maybe something immediately jumps to your mind as you, as you think about that sort of task, going to bed. You're, you're filled with anxiety. Maybe it's because when you crawl into bed, that's the first time in 24 hours that you've ever entertained the idea of silence. Finally. <laughs> After a a day of calling friends or neighbors or speaking with people, emailing people or texting people or conversing with people or disciplining your kids. There's suddenly a quiet that overtakes your household. It's almost so quiet that it's almost loud. It's It's a deafening silence. You can almost hear the silence. And that's when all of those Things that we were too distracted to, to think about earlier in the day suddenly come rushing to the front of our brains. All of the worries and the concerns and the fears and our misgivings and all those things that we're worried about. All those stories that we are consuming. All of those little headlines that we are reading. They come descending on our thoughts and they seem to close us in. I don't. Think I'm the only one that experiences this sometimes. I used to really struggle getting to bed as a young guy. My mind would just race and race and race thinking about all of these thoughts. And maybe you can relate to that. The stresses of life seem to close in around us. And there's this pressure that happens. And when we try to go to sleep. Where when the longer that we're not. It makes us more stressed because we're not. And therefore that stress causes us to not sleep. It's this endless cycle of not getting enough rest. I say all that to say that I think that's why David is sharing this psalm. Because I think he's, he's intent upon sort of sharing the way that he has striven to align his heart with God in order to dwell in safety and to lay himself down in peace. 
Notice verse 1 of this psalm where he says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. David, you see, he was not unfamiliar. He wasn't immune to those sort of claustrophobic feelings of fear and anxiety coming for him just before he tries to go to sleep. Actually, that's exactly what he's talking about. When he says, and he uses that expression, God, you have enlarged me when I was in distress. He's actually suggesting that God's very presence relieves that feeling of being closed in on, having the walls sort of close in on him at nighttime. That's what that word enlarge means. Actually, is you can translate it literally to bring to a spacious place. So you get this. Wonderful contrast. Where as he's communing with this God of my righteousness. This God brings him out to a safe spacious place. After having all those distresses. All of those worries closing in on him. This listening ear of God serves to usher him into a wide open pasture. I think this is a wonderful picture that David here paints. What I love even more is that this is not the first time he's gone to God for this very ministry. Notice what he says. You have enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. There's almost this essence of the fact that he's praying for this relieving mercy of God again. David is basically saying, you've led me out of that narrow strait of distress before. God, have mercy on me and lead me to this place once more. I think this is indicative of David's surest foundation in this psalm. Precisely that it is all of the past mercies of God. He's banking on those. He's resting on all of the ways that he remembers God has been merciful and has answered him and has has calmed him, has relieved him, has allowed him to to have nerves that are de-stressed. He's remembering all of those past mercies and he's saying, God, have mercy on me in this hour again. All of those Past evidences of mercy serve as his assurance for mercy right now. Such is what David is seeking to remember, to have on the front of his mind before he goes to bed each night. And there were many around him that were seeking to, to, to have him doubt such things. Notice verse 2. O ye sons of men. How long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. And then look at verse 6. Just that first phrase. There be many that say, who will show us any good? He's referencing some of these that were around him. He has, he says, these sons of men that come around him and ask him some very dubious questions. Questions that made him almost question his foundation. Who, why will you turn my glory into shame? Why are you questioning the idea of goodness? Who will show us any good? It makes him pause. 
That's where you get that word Selah. He pauses to consider these questions. And I think the question of verse 6 though is the one that I think most rings true in our day. As I was reading the psalm, I couldn't help but just stop at that question. Who will show us something good? Who will show us anything good? Where is the good news? Perhaps you've asked a similar question even recently. Maybe you've asked a a really similar inquiry. And maybe this is the very question that is keeping you up at night. The very question that's making you so anxious is the idea that you can't see any good news with all of the bad news all around you. All of the circumstances that have weighed you down. All of the stresses that have come into your life. All of those really harrowing news stories that you keep watching or reading or scrolling through. It makes you want to ask and cry out, who can show us anything good? And you look at the state of this world And you too might have to wonder the same thing. (laughs) We too might be given to question, where's the good in this? Where's, Where's our gladness to be found? You might feel as though it's not just hard, it can almost be impossible to see anything good. Especially if you watch the news for any amount of time. Because every story is just brimming with injustice or fear or violence or scandal or death or pandemic. All of these things, war and corruption, all of these things, they're pressing into your mind. They're coming before you to make it seem as though everything is bad. Who can show us anything that is good? I too often ask that. I don't, I, I'm not saying you have to do this. I don't really watch the news. I read a lot of news. But even in reading it, you can get caught up with this notion that there is no good news to be found. I don't, I don't know about you, but that is the, the thought that makes me more anxious than anything. Is when I get into those modes where I'm just thinking about all of the bad news that I've just consumed. <laughs> How is God, how can he make this good? How can he turn this into something that glorifies him? This is reprehensible. It's sin on display. It's the demonic forces of the principalities and powers of this world having their full reign over hearts that God died for. And yet they're rejecting him and they're pursuing a headlong, headstrong, hell-bent into wickedness and violence and sin and ultimately death. And that bad news seems to weigh us down and I know it does me or I ask that same question who can show us anything that's good in the midst of this I'm not saying you shouldn't watch the news I'm just saying the amount of time that you should spend watching the news should not even come close to the amount of time that you're spending in the word of God and to that, I'm preaching to myself. Because if you, if you put it on like a, like a pie chart, let's say you make a pie chart of what you consume. What would be the most thing that, what would be the thing that you consume the most? Netflix, local news, Fox News, God help you CNN. 
What, what would be the thing that fills up the pie chart the most? It's no wonder I think that we are so fretted and anxious when most of that proverbial pie chart is filled with headline news and not God's scriptures. It's no wonder we're so stressed. It's no wonder we have an outlook on our world that says everything is going to hell in a handbasket when all that we're consuming is news of things going to hell in a handbasket instead of God's good words to us. Me, I'm speaking to myself. I'm speaking to my own life. That I need this word. I need this word to calm me. I need this word to settle me. I need this word to keep my viewpoint on his truth alone. Not the truth that comes out, uh, out from, from man and various news outlets, so to speak. But the truth that comes from the one who is truth. If we make God's own words about this world and about this life and what his plans are for all of it, our first resort, I think our outlook would be a lot different. To know that he has a plan and nothing has impeded it. You know, in in the response to this almost scarcity of anything that's good, at least in the minds of these, quote, sons of men that David has here identified... Many of them turned to some very useless comforts to find some sort of rest, to find some sort of peace. Notice again verse 2 as he says, O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after leasing? Those who are asking that question, they are turning to vanity and leasing. Leasing that is lies or or falsehood. They're turning to something that is a false uh, promise of hope and peace. It is actually vanity, which is a word you might know from our time studying the book of Ecclesiastes. It's emptiness. It's a breath. It's a vapor in the cold winter's air that is there and it's gone. It dissipates quickly. It's a false, empty comfort that the world offers. Just a temporary distraction. It's a broken cistern. It's like going to the world to find peace and safety and comfort. Not just in your life. But yes even to try and go to bed. is like trying to put water, hold water in a sieve. It just falls out the bottom. With no peace left to be had. With no safety left to be experienced. And in fact, as long as we're looking for goodness amongst vanity and lies, we will always be incessantly asking this question, who will show us any good? But what I love, this, this is the good news. You want to know the good news? Notice how David answers this question. Look again at verse 6. I, I love this. I just, this just gets me so just mm, on fire. Verse 6, there may be, or there, excuse me, there be many that say, who will show us any good? Where is the good news? And what is David's answer? Lord, lift up the light of thy countenance upon us. In response to the questioning of God's goodness, what does David say? God, show us your countenance. Show us your glory. What is 
the light of his countenance? Well, a better question would be to say, who is the light of his countenance? Because this is none other than a prefigurement of Jesus himself. You see, countenance is that word face. And here's the good news. Jesus is the face of God in the form of flesh. He is the word of God incarnate for us. The word of God who has come to dwell among his people. He is the face of God in a person that is touchable, that is tangible, that is smellable, that is a person that is for us. What he's praying For the light of his countenance, he's praying for this glorious face of God's own son to shine upon them. This would be a true and a better sign of God's goodness than any amount of joy we could ever experience in this life. God's face. God's very face is the sign of his goodness to us and for us. This is David's song. Notice verse 6 again. And I'm going to read down through verse 8. There be many that say. Who? Who will show us any good? Lord. Lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart. More than the time that their, that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou Lord only makest me dwell in safety. You see, the promise of God's countenance implanted deep within David's person. Down into the depths of his heart. A gladness that could not be shaken. That could not be moved by all the tremblings and the troubles of the world. Even, even better, even, even, even so much greater than the peace that comes from an abundance of harvest. Through, uh, through uh, barns that are bursting at the seams with corn, as he says. Or storehouses that are just flooded with wine. Even better than that is the gladness that I have been given by God himself. That's planted deep within my soul. You and I this morning. We have a a much better word in which to find comfort than here even David had. Because we don't have just the promise of God's face that would shine upon us. We have the assurance. We have the person of it in Jesus Christ himself. We have the good news that this face hasn't just shined on us, but he has actually visited us. And more than that, he has actually died for us. He has actually taken our place where we were once at shame and we were once at enmity with God. He has taken that place for us. The very face of God becomes the face that is beaten by the wrath of God for you and for me. He takes Our place stands in our stead, enduring the brunt of all of the punishment we deserved. That's what this psalm here evokes, at least in my mind. It's that scene of the cross. Where a similar sort of gaggle of sons of men were shamefully crying out and and mocking God's glory. 
Crying out for something good. Show us your glory. They mockingly cried. As the person who was the goodness of God incarnate. Was bleeding out for them. They were crying out. Shamefully scorning his glory and his goodness. And there was goodness nailed to a cross. This is who Jesus is. He's the glory of God condescended to us. He is the goodness of God countenanced for us in order to take our death and destroy our sin and win our righteousness. You see, this is what makes this psalm so comforting. Because despite all of the horrors of life that, is, that are around us, we, yes, you this morning, the church, you can sleep the sleep of the righteous precisely because you've been made righteous by no doing of your own. Did you notice? Notice verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. He's identifying where his righteousness is found. Not in him, not in his abilities, not in his piousness, not in his religiosity, not in anything that he can establish or win for himself. He says, God, you are my righteousness. You're the one who leads me out into a safe space. This is what God does. The light of God comes to shine his light of righteousness on souls that are buried in the depths of the darkest of sins. And he calls them righteous precisely because he has won their righteousness for them. And now they can have peace and assurance because they didn't win it themselves. It's secure in who God is. This is the assurance that this word of the gospel, this word of scripture gives us. An assurance that's infinitely better than any assurance that we can claim for ourselves. Better than anything that we can try to trick our minds to go to sleep is resting in the righteousness of God given to us. Given to us precisely because the face of God was beaten for us. That's the truth underneath all truths. The good news of scripture. That this Lord, that this Savior who authors our righteousness. He sustains our worlds even while we sleep. Which is where we get that wonderful phrase. Notice verse 8. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. For thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. You know what that phrase there means? Lay me down. He's literally resigning control. It's a resignation that he can't control anything, let alone his own life. What is he there? What is his recourse? What is his, what is his only respite? What is his only space of safety? Is to lay down knowing that God has a way better control over this life, over this world, than anything he could ever accomplish. He can sleep Peacefully, precisely because he knows that God does not ultimately need him to keep the world turning. God is sovereign. 
And I don't just mean that as a, as a pithy line of encouragement. He is absolutely sovereign. And this, such is why Jesus says to his own apostles, hey, don't worry about the morrow. It has enough troubles for itself. I'm the one who is already occupying the space of tomorrow. You just be faithful and at rest and at peace right now because I can worry about tomorrow. You have no business invading that realm. <laughs> So often, all of the cares and the worries of tomorrow invade our present. Precisely because we refuse to relinquish control over them. Such as the, such as the battlefield of sleep. <laughs> We're wrestling with the idea of relinquishing control over our very lives. I like how one writer put it. By sleeping, we are relinquishing control and reminding ourselves, at least for a few hours, that God doesn't actually need us. When we close our eyes each night, we are saying, I don't run the world, I don't run the church, I don't even run my own little life. You're basically preaching to yourself the absolute sovereignty of Jesus and his grace for you and to you. Such is why he says in verse 4, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Stretch yourself out on the fact that he is the one who keeps the world turning, not you yourself. (laughs) He's... Testifying that he can sleep because he recognizes not just is it an act of surrender, it's a gift of grace. Write this psalm down and just read it later. Maybe when you're trying to get an afternoon nap. Psalm 127. Listen to this, these two lines from verses 1 and 2. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Hmm. It's a gift. This isn't a gift that encourages laziness. It's a gift that encourages rest. And the assurance that God's care for this life, for this world, for this universe is far infinitely greater than your ability to care for it. Your ability to control it. Your ability to withstand it. Therefore we have this beautiful picture of the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the face of God, winning our righteousness, reassuring us that he is the one that is in control over all all things. This is the good word that disrupts all of our distraction, that comes and relieves all of our distress and reminds us that we can sleep soundly in the assurance that nothing is beyond this God's supervision. Nothing is outside of his peripheral vision. (laughs) This moment in history is not outside of his purview. It's not outside or beyond the reaches of his sovereign fingers. I know I've... uh, 
I've sounded like a broken record at times by just reminiscing and resting in the fact that Jesus is king. Yes, even over this moment in history, but I just, I feel it in my own bones that I need that message myself. Because so often I'm given over to anxiety and then I'm made to fall on my face and realize I have no business worrying about a kingdom that I can't even usher in. All I can do is testify to the fact that this kingdom is coming. Do you know that that unburdens you? We get perhaps, uh, maybe it's just me, I don't know. You, maybe you're just way more faithful than me. But I see some bad news. See some things about uh, pastors and, and Christians announcing that they're deconstructing their faith. And announcing that they no longer believe in the gospel. And it's how can this be a part of the plan? How can this be a part of what you're doing? How can this be good? God, show us the good news. How can your kingdom that is supposedly a kingdom of purity and holiness and righteousness come in a world that is so fraught with wickedness and sin and violence? And then I made to remember that I am not the one burdened with bringing in the kingdom of God. I'm the one that's gifted the ability to just say, this kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming in his timing, in his ways, without necessarily our involvement. (laughs) Nothing can hinder it. Nothing can delay it. Nothing you best believe can stop it. Knowing that, what does that do to me? It frees me up from the burden of tomorrow by realizing realizing that right now is the gift that I've been given. To testify to this wonderful gracious kingdom that welcomes all. Yes, any and all who repent have a spot in this kingdom. It unburdens me by knowing that God has no blind spots. He hasn't turned away his eye. From your life, let alone this country, let alone this world. He still has his eye on us. He still has his concern for us. There is nothing he does not notice. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, even the hungry sparrows, the the falling out of your hairs, and yes, even sleepless children... He notices every single one of them. He notices every single thing that happens in our lives. And yes, even the lives that we don't even know. He watches over it all. He's the superintendent of all life. So finally, yes, maybe perhaps it takes you a long time. But finally, when you close your eyes and fall asleep, you can be assured that he doesn't. He doesn't take his eyes off of your life, let alone this world. In fact, he comes close through his spirit to almost whisper, don't worry, I'll keep an eye on the universe. (laughs) He comes close and his words to us are from Matthew 11, 28. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Yes, spiritual rest. But yes, you best believe physical rest. From your stressing and your straining over tomorrow. He says, I will give you rest. 
precisely because I'm the God of tomorrow. The God who doesn't change yesterday and today and forever. I'm the same. Everything is going according to plan. Just rest in my promises. Trust in my grace. And lay yourself down in peace and sleep. (laughs) So church. You can sleep. You can rest in this beautiful gospel. Of the face of God. That is for you. That is watching over you. That is with you every single hour. Yes. The hours that you're awake. And the hours that you're asleep. This God. Is for you. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes. At this time.